Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, July 9th, and we're saying bienvenue to Duolingo. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's flat-footed frontman of free-flowing foolish philosophies, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how you doing? Hola, Dylan. Como estas? Look at that. I, you know, that I do understand. I took high school French. Uh, I regret it. Should have taken Spanish. But that much I can grasp, Brian. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I, I can't complain. Wonderful. Well, if you want to up your game in either French, which you've clearly forgotten a whole lot of, <laughs> or Spanish, do I have the app for you, Dylan? <laughs> That's right. We're going to be talking about Duolingo on today's show. Uh, we have our hands on the prospectus from this company. Uh, it's an app that helps people learn other languages. Not yet public. Uh, we'll be public probably sometime in the next uh, couple of weeks or months. We're going to be giving you a first look at it. And Brian, I love doing S1 shows. I particularly love doing S1 shows on companies that I have used and been a consumer of. That's the case for me. I'm wondering, have you used this app before? I've never used this app before, but I've known about this app for many years. We're going to talk a little bit about the founder later, but I actually watched the founder, uh, the founder's TED Talk five, six years ago, and that TED Talk was actually about reCAPTCHA, another company that he founded, and during that, he was talking about how he's taking his skills to use to found Duolingo. So this is definitely a tech founder that I've heard of, but no, I've never used the app before. Yeah, and I think there are actually some interesting similarities between the the reCAPTCHA founding story and what we see here with Duolingo as a business, with the mission, the drive, and the orientation uh, that this company has. Uh, For folks that aren't as familiar with it, I'd highly recommend just going to the App Store, uh, whether you're Android or an iOS user, and going and checking out the app. It's free. Uh, They follow this freemium model. And really, Brian, I think it's one of the easiest and most accessible ways to get started if you are looking to learn a language. This app has been downloaded more than 500 million times. I mean, that is an astounding figure. And to your point, that's because this is the number one way to learn a foreign language and it's free. How can you not like that? Yeah, and and the reason it is free, uh, it kind of ties directly into the company's mission. Uh, They say, our mission is to develop the best education in the world and make it universally available. They talk about it multiple times in the prospectus, Brian. They really want to make access to education free. They don't want to create barriers or anything like that. Um, and that reflects you know, what we see in the, in the business model, uh, their pricing, and, and really just how they go about doing most things at the company. Got to love it. This company is definitely mission-driven right from the start. I want to read something that they wrote right in their S1. They said, Duolingo was founded to help build a future where high-quality education is available to everyone, no matter where they live or how much money they have. For the first time in history, this is possible. We can reach billions of people on their smartphones with an app that's free and fun to use. I really like that. This tells me that this is a founder. Uh, this is a mission-driven company that's going to accept, uh, that's going to attract the best and the brightest that are interested in fulfilling that mission. I love it. I love it. And, and I will say, you know, they, they have, I believe, 40 plus languages. Um, and it would be easy to think that they are all French 
Spanish, uh, you know, the types of things that you would be learning um, in in high school or middle school, um, or maybe something ahead of travel. I will throw in there though, Brian, there is some whimsy to this company. You are able to learn Klingon or High Valerian uh, as well using the platform. Latin's in there. Who says it's a dead language? There, you can you can really um, explore a couple different things here. But but I think w- what you see immediately when you use the app is there is clearly a fun and and I would say foolish culture to the way that this company is run and the way that they treat their users. And you can even go one step further to say that they've really tried to gamify um, learning a language. They do everything in their power to make it not only easy to do so, but to also make it fun. And they offer like rewards and stuff to, to their members. They say that that really helps to keep users coming back again and again, because we both know learning a language is incredibly hard and it can take a long time to do so. Keeping people engaged through the entire process is huge. Yeah, it's it's super humbling to pick up something, uh, especially as an adult from from zero and really try to learn it. You know, uh, it's easy to stay within your comfort zone once you're an adult. Um, and I think they've done a very good job of making their lessons bite sized. I mean, if you have five minutes, you know, you can you can hop in and knock out a lesson or a really small uh, part of um, the way that they'd be treating you through through the different blocks that they have. And I think that's nice. I had originally downloaded the app back in 2015, re-engaged with it actually during stay at home and was like, I'm going to try to like work on some of my primitive Spanish. Um, unfortunately, I'm probably one of their lapsed users because my Spanish is not particularly good. Uh, but, I, but I think it just speaks to uh, how accessible it is, how easy it is for people to hop in. Um, what we see with that, Brian, is it, it, it tends to be something where there's a very large download base, there's a smaller monthly active base um, and an even smaller number of people that actually pay to use the service, uh, which is how they make a lot of their money. Yeah, that is the model here. The model is anybody can use it for for free. Uh, they are monetized a little bit with uh, with advertising revenue. Uh, the primary way that this company makes money is to upsell those users to an ad free experience. It also offers some other uh, features, um, some other features offline that you can't get through the free version. However, you can still learn the language easily. One other thing of note is this company actually has a third revenue stream, which they call the Duolingo English Test, and this test is accepted at over 3,000 higher education schools around the world to prove English proficiency. And when I say 3,000 higher education schools, I'm talking about Yale, Stanford, MIT, Duke, Columbia, really, really big name premier schools. So that has become, uh, that that is about 17% of their revenue. And it's really exciting for me to see as an investor that they're already thinking outside the box and are developing new revenue streams. Yeah, I, I think that they have established themselves as the name for this in the way that I think for maybe a previous generation, Rosetta Stone would have been the name that you would use if you were trying to learn a language and do it uh, online or on a computer um, and, and you weren't attending physical classes. It, it, I'm loath to say like this is the verb of this space, but I think Duolingo is pretty close to that like Airbnb or Google territory where like the app is so synonymous with how people search for these types of learning tools. How is this for a stat? The number of searches for the word Duolingo are nine times higher than the number of searches for learn Spanish on Google. If that's not brand dominance, I don't know what is. And you see it, I mean, just generally with like learn Spanish and learn French and some of these other, you know, more targeted queries, like 
they are in the first couple of results for all of them. Um, and, and we know from, from working on, you know, the, the free side of fool.com with distribution, just how important that search engine optimization is, uh, because organic traffic is huge. Um, it's, it's nice that I have to pay for it and it's nice to earn it in the eyes of an algorithm. Um, it's a huge, huge competitive advantage and it's a low cost way for them to acquire users as well. They actually say that 90% of their users come through them through word of mouth. So this is a brand that travels from person to person. And it makes sense why. It's free to download, it's easy to use, and it's effective. And there are 40 million people, 40 million monthly active users that are using this product. The company has some stats out there to help put that in perspective that I just love. 40 million active users, that's more people are on Duolingo than all of the foreign language learners in all U.S. high schools combined. And there are, for some languages like Irish and Hawaiian, there are more people learning those languages on Duolingo than there are native speakers in the world. That's incredible. I mean, that's that's scale for you right there. Um, and, and I think that they benefit tremendously from this freemium model um, because it's so accessible and it makes it feel like something that people can just kind of dip their toe into. Because I think with language, Brian, there are a lot of people who either, um, because they're taking a trip, want to learn a language or have a little bit of background with a language and are trying to kind of dust it off again uh, and re-engage with you know, that, that part of their brain that has kind of tucked away uh, all those verbs and conjugations. Yeah, that makes sense. So it makes sense why there are so many users of this. Now, as we'll talk about a little later in the show, that can lead to some pretty high churn rates. Uh, for example, this app has been downloaded more than 500 million times, yet the company's monthly active user rate is just about 40 million. So that does show that a whole bunch of people have downloaded this and have stopped using it for one reason or another. As a potential investor, that kind of irks me a little bit. That's not too exciting. However, there's no doubt that this is the dominant name in the space. Brian, you mentioned uh, Duolingo Plus before. That, that's the premium subscription model that they have. Uh, it sets users back about six ninety nine a month. Uh, it is the lion's share of, of how they are bringing in money, uh, about 72% of their top line. Let's just talk quickly about what you get with Duolingo Plus. Um, and then I also want to spend a little bit of time with that English test because I think it's a really interesting part of their business. The primary reason that you go with the Duolingo Plus is because you get an ad-free experience. Very similar to, say, Spotify, right? You can use Spotify for free. Why do people upgrade? They don't want to hear ads anymore. Very similar for Duolingo. They do have some other features that they do call out, though. Uh, you can take the lessons uh, offline, so you don't have to be connected to the internet at the same time. Uh, they have a progress tracker. Uh, there's something called a streak repair. Uh, you can do unlimited skips on it. Uh, and you can practice uh, more, more, more often on it. So a couple of small features that upgrade, but they really stress that you can still learn a language with the free version. Yeah, the the free version is is great. It it runs with you know the standard annoyances that might come with a, a freemium model, where yeah, you get you get the ads served up to you. But I do think it's helpful to take a step back every now and then with with the app economy and with the subscription economy we're in, and just remember like okay, so seven dollars a month is, is is what you're paying for something like this. At that price point, it reminds me an awful lot of like paying for Spotify, you know, being like ten or eleven dollars a month, something like that. The sheer access that you get for that price point is wild and pretty much unprecedented in human history, Brian. Like, There's been no time where you've been able to pay that little and have access to this type of content library. 
And one other thing to potentially compare it to would be Rosetta Stone. Uh, Rosetta Stone used to be a public company and The Motley Fool really liked it. It was a recommendation in several services. It didn't turn out too well for investors in the long term, because, but I think people liked it because it was, at the time, the dominant brand name in language learning. However, if you just click on Rosetta Stone and do a Google search right now, you see that you can download their software, which is still fantastic, but that costs several hundred dollars. You compare that to get started for free on Duolingo, I can see why Duolingo is taking share. Yep, I, I totally get it. It makes a ton of sense to me. And and I think it helps to be uh, mobile native with a lot of this stuff and, and really kind of moving with where consumers are. Um, like we said, Duolingo Plus is the majority of the top line for them. The Duolingo English test is super interesting. Um, you talked about generally how it's used, and there are a lot of really top flight universities um, that are uh, making use of it right now. Um, it costs $49 per test. It's in the double digits as a percentage of revenue. It's growing uh, pretty substantially, which, which is pretty interesting. Um, and it's gone from something that wasn't contributing all that much to the top line to something that's much more relevant when you look at their revenue. But it's not really where the money's coming from. I think it's one of their more interesting growth levers, though, Brian. It definitely is. And let's talk about exactly where the revenue is coming from. So uh, in the most recent uh, year, uh, this company, the most recent year, this company uh, grew its top line 129% to $162 million. That was as of uh, 2020. If you break that down further, 72% uh, of that total came from Duolingo Plus, and only about 5% of total active users are premium members. So it's just like Spotify, where the minority of, of paying users drive the lion's share of revenue. Revenue growth. 17% uh, of the company's uh, revenue came from advertising. So that's the 95% that don't want to pay, but they're still being monetized a little bit uh, through ads. But yet 11% was driven through that uh, Duolingo uh, English test and given uh, I mean English is definitely the the most the biggest language for for this company. However, you could see more tests like that being rolled out uh, over time. Uh, perhaps a, a learn Mandarin test, a learn Spanish test that could be accepted at uh, different universities. That could be an opportunity for this company long term. Hey, that's starting to sound like optionality there, Brian. <laughs> certainly is. <laughs> um, knowing that the subscription uh, part of their business is where most of the money is being made, the, the inputs there are really, okay, can they continue to grow users and can they convert more of their free users over to paid users? We're seeing pretty solid growth for both of those, but they've actually seen paid growth exceed what they're getting in terms of just core user accumulation. Yes, as of the most recent quarter, this company had uh, 37 million total monthly active users. That was up 34% over the prior year. However, you look at their paid users, that figure was up 84% to 1.6 million. So they are doing a better job of, of penetrating their user base and convincing more and more of them to pay. Yeah. One other thing I'll toss out there as we're talking through some of these key metrics and, and the financials is uh, 4.7. And that is the number of stars that Duolingo has on the iOS app store. Um, and, and what kind of blew my mind looking at that was it's based on 1.2 million ratings, Brian. That is a staggering number of reviews for an app. It's, it's kind of crazy to hear it's that high. It really shows you that it, that's, that it works. And that kind of, those kind of numbers really show why this is the number one uh, top-selling app in the education category on both Google and Apple. It works. It is, and in addition to you know um, what what we see in terms of you know their their exposure with search engine optimization and Google queries that we talked about how ninety percent of the or, uh, customers are organic, they consistently rank well 
in the app store for education. They're usually the first, second, or third app for education. And they're regularly in the cycle being featured for editor's picks and other uh, ways that you know the, the app stores will surface content for users. And it's it's hard to put a dollar value on what that looks like, Brian, because it just means they've, they've created something that people like and they want to share with other people. That's right. And that's what it's all about when you're pursuing this company's business model. They clearly are a major player in the category. And that is resulting in some pretty fantastic financial results. So in 2020, total revenue growth was 129% to $162 million. The gross margin here, very strong at 72%. There's potential room for that number to grow over time as the company continues to scale. Now, the company is spending pretty heavily on research and development. That's their biggest uh, expense category. They also significantly enhanced their sales and marketing spend. As a result, they actually reported a net loss of about $13.5 million, uh, excuse me, $15.5 million. However, that is just an accounting a net loss. If you kind of look at free cash flow, this company reported positive $14 million in free cash flow. So they could be profitable if they wanted to. Uh, they just don't want to yet because they're spending grow. Yeah. And with that top line growth and the revenue growth, it makes sense why, you know, you, you want to be plowing that money right back into the business. Um, you, you basically covered everything I would hit in terms of financials. I do like to see that for them, the revenue is diversifying a little bit. Um, 2019, the subscription business was 82% of bookings. 2020, it is 75% of bookings. Um, so we're seeing that that proficiency test is starting to make its presence felt a little bit on the company's books. I'd expect that to continue, especially if they're able to branch that out into other languages and really build that up. It isn't clear to me if there's much of a difference in the margin profile between those businesses, Brian. I mean, at core, they're delivering a digital good. It's really just you know one way of doing it versus the other. Yeah, right. So we can probably expect that the margins will stay strong for a long period of time. One other thing to note, while we do just have the S1, we don't yet know what this company is going to come public at, the valuation, any of that. However, even before this company come public, pretty strong balance sheet, $117 million in cash, no debt. That is going to be even better once this company raises cash through the IPO process. So financially, this company is in great shape. Yeah, and I would say, you know, we we always like to look and see what employees think of leadership, what reviews look like on Glassdoor, and things are pretty glowing over there too, Brian. So the CEO and founder here is Luis Von Ahn. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And yeah, we poked around on Glassdoor like we always do. There's only 43 ratings, so take this with the grain of salt perhaps, but those in those 43 ratings really paint uh, the CEO in very positive light. The company itself gets 4.6 stars out of five. 91% of employees would recommend it to a friend, and 96% of them approve of the CEO. Those are really, really strong numbers. They are, and and you put that on top of a resume where uh, you teased this a little bit before. This is not his first rodeo. He's he's built something successful and sold it before. Um, and he seems to be a pretty passionate and mission-driven leader. Uh, I like the pedigree here. I, I like what, what he's been able to do. And, you know, the, these Glassdoor reviews are just kind of nice further proof that uh, seems to be a pretty good team. 
I like it when I can find a founder of a company that already has a track record with success. And he already has that. Again, recapture the company he founded that everybody here is probably familiar with when you type something in to prove that you're not a, a robot. That business was sold to Google in 2000, uh, 2009. So he already has a history of successfully exiting a business and starting and starting a new one. Now, I'm sure that that gave him plenty of capital to live for the rest of his life. So because of that, I would expect him to own a pretty decent amount of stock because he could fund the operations himself. Thankfully, we do see that here. Uh, he owns this is a this is a stock with two cl share classes, class A and class B. Uh, he owns 14.6% uh, of the total voting power of the company and just over 4 million shares of the business. Again, we don't know what the final figures are going to be, but the odds are pretty good that he's going to have plenty of skin in the game. Yep. And and I mean, we have to kind of wait and see where valuation comes in. Um, you know, based on the growth rates and, and what we've seen in terms of financials, as well as kind of looking at where this company's been in the private markets, uh, it has boasted a billion plus valuation privately. So uh, it would not be a surprise at all for this to be uh, somewhere in the single digit billions. Um, if things get really crazy, maybe the double digit billions uh, for valuation as it comes public, Brian, uh, we'll just have to wait and see what those details look like. For numbers to throw out there, so 162 million in revenue in 2020. So you put a 10x multiple on that, that's 1.6 billion. You put a 20x multiple on that, that's 3.2 billion. A company that just came public that is same, same similar pedigree, uh, Doximity. After IPO, that immediately traded at 50 times sales, which would put this business at about $8 billion. So where is it going to land? I don't know, but I'm guessing the premium is going to be pretty big. Yep. And, you know, I mean, businesses that are growing their top line uh, and growing their users the way they are generally tend to command pretty good premiums when it comes to valuation. Uh, they deserve it and they continue to deserve it as long as the growth story stays intact. I think that's going to be a really huge part of it. One thing I've kind of thought about a little bit with this, Brian, is, you know, uh, how, how much was a was this company a beneficiary of folks staying at home and being pushed a little bit more to digital goods? Uh, I think it would be easy to overlook that and think of that thesis being more applicable to like the e-commerce companies. But I do think that they might have experienced some adoption that they perhaps wouldn't have normally uh, if you know 2020 was a more normal year. I think that that's fair. And as you've said many times, companies choose when they want to come public. This company's trailing numbers obviously look fantastic. Is it possible that the company comes public and then its churn rate skyrockets or the number of users that go to the paid really slow down? All of those things are entirely possible. So that will be something for investors to watch. Yeah. But if this company does not do well, Brian, I would say it is not because of the lack of opportunity. There, there seems to be a lot of fertile ground here, um, and the company seems fairly uh, well positioned to take advantage of it. The company believes that there are about 1.8 billion people around the world that are learning a new language at any given time. And if you look at the online and offline language working markets, that represents a $61 billion opportunity. I think it's important to note there, there that while this company has a strong foothold in language, and that will definitely be the core market for now, the company's mission isn't to make help to learn help the world learn a second language. It's to bring education uh, to the world. So once they have this platform, is it possible they could roll out other educational products that are in this same vein? That's entirely possible. But to your point, with only 160 million in trailing revenue versus 60 billion market, there's room for growth. <laughs> there's a lot of room for growth. Um, and I think that this option in particular is really interesting to a lot of people. I mean, 
I think the freemium model totally makes sense for a product like this. Um, it, it gives you the feel of being able to dip your toe in. It's low committal. Um, and that's huge for adoption. Um, the, the big question for me is, and really, I think this is probably something that I, that I back into with almost anything that's a freemium business is when you have such a small portion of users as paying users, um, that presents massive opportunity. I'm reminded of some of the cloud storage companies that, that we've seen out there um, that are more consumer facing. But it also means that the consumer expectation is that I don't necessarily have to pay for this product. And you have to battle that almost the entire time. Yeah, that's that, that certainly is. And there's also, yeah, ask your question, what percentage realistically long-term will be willing to pay for this? I mean, if you can get almost all of the benefit, all of the benefit of the product and remain on, remain, uh, remain a free user, why, why wouldn't you do that? Especially if you are, um, especially if you can't afford, uh, to, to pay a premium. So this company is still going to provide that education to you, but I mean, they're already at about a 5%, uh, conversion rate that have already paid, go to the paid product. I mean, what does that cap out at? 8%, 10%, those numbers would be really, really good. Uh, but I don't think this is ever going to get to 20%, 30%, or 50%. No, me neither. And and I think getting even into the double digits is going to be a little bit of a stretch, just historically what we've seen in, in the freemium markets. Um, I, I think that that tends to be a little bit of a hurdle for them. Um, I will say, Brian, one thing I was kind of looking for a little bit more of in the prospectus was some, some background on... Uh, either cohort analysis or retention rates or expansion rates or, or something that gives a better sense of really like how someone stays with the product over time. I don't feel like we really got a good look at that. And why do you think that is, Dylan? Why would they keep that information to themselves? What do we see? What's the first thing we see if a SaaS company comes public? It's like page one. Here's our dollar-based net revenue retention rate, if it's fantastic, right? Uh, if, if you have to go hunting for it, that's typically a sign that it's not going to be good. And given the nature of the business model and just given the nature of learning a language, right? When you're learning a language, do, do, you, do you envision yourself using this, this app for five years? No, right? It would be something you use for a month, three months, get the get the get the gist down, and then maybe use it later to to brush up on. So I think that's just the nature of learning a language that the churn rate is pretty high. So it doesn't surprise me that we don't see it. And again, to just put some rough numbers around it, this app has been downloaded 500 million times, and there are just under 40 million monthly active users. So that shows that at least 90 percent of the people, at least 92% of the people that have downloaded this app are currently not monthly active users. Therefore, the churn rate has got to be high. Yeah, it's it's um it's like a lot of resolution type businesses where your your idea of something is so ambitious to start. Um, and it could be a gym routine, it could be learning a language, anything that's kind of aspirational. Um, but then the rubber meets the road and you have to keep doing it over time and life just kind of catches up with you, things come up and and maintaining that goal can become hard. I think with their gamification, they're able to kind of cut through some of that a little bit. Um, you know, with push notifications, that kind of stuff. Uh, they'll nudge me, you know, when I'm not when I'm not in the app uh practicing practicing my Spanish or my French. So I definitely see them finding ways to engage with people. Um, I have a similar question though with that, where like for them, a lifetime user is is a lifelong learner that is interested in learning new languages over time. And once they feel like they've gotten to proficiency with a language going, okay, I'm going to learn Portuguese now. Uh, I'm going I'm to learn, you know, uh, some other language now, Czech or something like that. Um, so I, I think they have to kind of figure out, okay, how do we, how do we, keep people on once they've gotten to wherever they want to be 
with languages. They do have some optionality there, Brian, uh, with, with bringing in other sources of revenue and also expanding into other forms of education. I think they probably just have a lot of work to do just on their core language stuff, though, first. Sure do. But again, the numbers for this company are still pretty, pretty impressive, even with that high churn rate. So if I was uh, following, if I was to invest in this company and follow it, uh, which I'm very interested in following it at the, at the very least, I'm just going to let the numbers do the talking like always. What's happening to revenue? What's happening to monthly active users? If those numbers are going up, churn won't bother me too much because given the nature of the app, maybe you use it for a couple months, then you go away from it and then you're taking another trip and you want to start using it uh, again. Maybe they rule out new features, but with 500 million p- times this thing has been downloaded, that gives them a big audience to roll out potentially new products to. Yeah. And, and I think that going through this, it checks a lot of the boxes. Like this is a snap test company, I think for some people, not, not everybody, but like there are a decent number of people who'd be like, wait, what, what, Duolingo is out of business? What do you mean? Like, you know, if, if this company disappeared, the, people I think would figure it out pretty quickly. Um, they have what seems like recurring revenue. It's a digital product with high margins, low debt, a lot to like there, Brian. What What is kind of tough for me is like knowing it's a subscription business, I really want numbers on how those users are performing over time. And it bothers me so much that they don't exist I think because there are other subscription businesses out there that tout that number, and I can really just kind of hang my hat on it, um, this probably stays in, I'm interested, I'm following for a long time until I see enough performance to really feel comfortable. Fair enough. You could always wait to see how it performs as a public company too. Or you can hop on the first conference call and ask that very question and see if they'll take your question, Dylan. That's right. And, and actually, um, unsurprisingly, this is a business that is looking to engage with retail investors. Um, people are going to be able to get uh, access to IPO shares via the Robinhood IPO access platform. Uh, they announced that scant details at the moment, but that is something uh, to keep an eye out for. And Brian, you know, I, I think that that's uh, kind of a, a fun thing for companies to be doing. Totally makes sense in the case of Duolingo, it's a consumer-facing brand. They have a lot of loyal users. Why wouldn't you want those people to be shareholders? I would absolutely love that. I, I mean, my, my, my personal view of Robinhood would skyrocket if all of a sudden I could get shares of companies like this at the IPO price because of, because of Robinhood. So I love that they are, I love that they're doing that because how many times have we talked about a company on the show? We say, hey, this is, this is interesting. And then what happens day one? Share price doubles, right? And it's like, well, how do I get those shares at the at the IPO price? Uh, you, you can't. So that'd be great if uh, if Duolingo, uh, if Robinhood allowed that to happen here. Yeah, and, and I think we will see that happen. We'll, we'll get more details on that. We say it all the time. It is never been a better time to be an individual investor, Brian, uh, except for maybe tomorrow. You know, I mean, it, I think it only continues to get better uh, for us on the retail side. Uh, it's it's great to see costs coming down. It's great to see access improving. Um, and uh, I think things only continue to go that way. Um, I don't really have much more on Duolingo. I feel like we kind of covered it. I, I think this is a super fascinating business. Um, the numbers look pretty darn good. Uh, it is firmly on the, I'm paying attention to this thing. I just want to see more from them uh, as they come public. Fair enough. And I do want to point out one other thing that uh, caught my eye in the S1 that is worth noting. This company is heavily reliant on Apple and Google for distribution of their app. In fact, Apple is responsible for uh, over 47% of their revenue. Google is responsible for 29% of their revenue. And Stripe is responsible for 14% of their revenue. 
If those two platforms, Apple or Google, for whatever reason, decided to kick Duolingo off, that could make it really hard for this company to grow. Do I think that's going to happen? No, but did I think that Apple and Epic Games were going to have a feud and I wouldn't be able to play Fortnite ever again on my iPad? No, so things can happen. So just keep that in mind if you're an investor. Are you trademarking that, the Epic Games disclaimer? <laughs> Any company with app-based yes. distribution now needs that as a caveat. It really shows you just how powerful Apple and Google have become, but that is something to, to watch here. What happens if Apple all of a sudden got really serious about taking on language and said, hey, we're not going to offer this in our platform anymore? Again, do I think that's going to happen? No. Could it? Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, Brian, even if it doesn't happen, it speaks to the dynamics at play with distribution and what Apple and, and Google are really able to charge. You know, there's the quote unquote Apple tax uh, for apps. And it, you know, it kind of varies depending on who the provider is, the popularity, uh, the model, all that kind of stuff. But it's not an insignificant amount of money if you're, you know, an app creator. And so, um, you know, that, that is something that plays into the company financials at, at a certain point um, and, and could be worth, you know, paying attention to. Sure. But overall, as, as you said, I think that there are more positives than negatives with this company. And I, for one, sure plan on following it after it comes public. You and me both. And we'll be paying attention to anything else that comes out uh, that might be worth tearing through prospectus-wise. We're always hungry uh, for more S1s. And of course, Brian, we're, we're always looking for listener suggestions as well. So industryfocus at fool.com. Always shoot your ideas there. But of course, we're at MF Industry Focus on Twitter. And Brian, you're at Brian Feroldi on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I've got, we've gotten several ideas from people that have sent me a direct message. So if you have an idea for a show that you want to hear about, hit us up. Love it. Brian, as always, thanks for hopping on and talking with me. Hasta la vista, Dylan. <laughs> uh, listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.